Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. So the essay I want to comment on today is a very interesting looking one by someone I found on Academia, but had never heard of Andy Letcher. Apparently he has a book uh, called Shroom, A Cultural History of the Magic Mushroom, and other articles on his website, or blogspot on druids, mushroom cultural history, and many other things, including what's going on with the internet and how it's affected music. So that's interesting. Um, I hadn't heard of him. Uh, I'm not sure what his academic background is or anything like that, but I definitely want to share my thoughts on this beautiful little article he has written called Psychedelics, Animism, and Spirituality by Andy Letcher. In her book, Wild, an elemental journey. The travel writer, Jay Griffiths, describes a vision occasioned by her drinking the Amazonian hallucinogenic brew, ayahuasca, under the guidance of the shamans in Peru. She felt herself transformed into a jaguar and then, clear as day, transported back to her university town of Oxford, where she prowled through the reading rooms of the Bodleian Library. I think it's Bodleian, but whatever. Roaring in anger and disgust at how my culture can know so little for knowing so much. Her anger was triggered by the chasm she perceived between dry Western epistemology and the oppressed wild and wet knowledge of the rainforest. Amazonian shamans, she writes, feel they are drinking knowledge when they take ayahuasca. People don't just learn about plants, they learn from certain plants called plant teachers or doctores, which teach people medicine. This is a contradiction in terms to the Western mind. It balks at there being intelligence in anything other than humankind. Yeah, you're right. You can guess it. I'm taking issue with that right away. But no, he's completely right. The Western mind is referring to the Western mind. But when I think of the Western mind, I think of the breadth of the intellectual tradition we have to draw from, and Rudolf Steiner is a big part of my Western tradition, and a very significant influence in the Western tradition, if you can consider at all the fact that he's schools based on Hermetic, Rosicrucian, and Freemasonic ideas and mysteries, are the largest private school system in the world. So that's a lot of people that are getting exposed to the idea of plants as intelligences, rocks as intelligences, 
the idea that there's gnomes hiding under roots and trees. It's, but yes, the mainstream Western mind has a ways to go, doesn't it? Her story is arresting, but it arouses conflicting reactions in me. As a writer and part-time university lecturer living in Oxford, oh, that's his background, there you go. I spend a good deal of my working life at, in the Bodleian Library. I feel humbled, privileged that I can just wander in, that with a few deft clicks of the mouse I can call up, handle, and read rare manuscripts, obscure texts, or expensive reference books. Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous already. Indeed, that any of us can study the exact words of a long-dead Greek philosopher or medieval poet, or that you might be reading this long after I have been reshelved, seems to me one of the most remarkable achievements of Western civilization. And yet I share, if not Griffith's rage, then her sense of frustration at the seemingly impregnable self-belief of Western epistemology, its certainty that, eventually, it will know everything. That is one of the big shifts, actually, within intellectual history, where we've recently... Um, <clears throat> It's actually a postmodern idea, the idea that we have an intellectual evolutionary progression towards ultimate and complete knowing that is began in ancient days and slowly moved forward. But that's something that has been very largely overturned with, with, uh, with and again, some people aren't going to like this, but postmodern ideas that have undermined some of the basic assumptions of everything, because that's a lot of what deconstruction is about, undermining and destabilizing basic assumptions to investigate new assumptions, not necessarily to make up whatever you want, as the current neo-postmodernists would have you think that are causing all this brouhaha in the world, but traditionally, 50, 60, 70 years ago, that's more what it meant. It meant saying, hey, well, maybe it isn't just one slow progressive evolutionary march of knowledge from pre-Platonic to modern-day epistemology. Maybe there's phases and periods and maybe we lose knowledge and maybe the burning of an entire library in Egypt actually set us back a ways. Imagine that. See, that's actually quite, quite a postmodern idea. <clears throat> so, there you have that. We might not know everything. That's just, that's just the facts. And we have probably lost a lot of knowledge that we might never know again. So, that certainty is, is overturned as he, as he's sort of implying I have never drunk ayahuasca, <clears throat> okay, but I have had a 15-year relationship with my own local hallucinogen, the psilocybin-containing magic mushroom, or Liberty Cap, psilocybe semilanciata. Under the influence of these tiny goblin-hatted mischief-makers, which spring every autumn in great profusion from the upland pastures of Britain, I have had a range of experiences that I struggle to explain in terms permissible to Western epistemology. I can honestly describe them as shamanistic or animistic, perhaps shamanimistic. <laughs> shamanimistic. Shamanimistic is what he says. There you go. I like that. In that, sorry, it's 100 degree heat where I'm at today, so I'm a little sweltery and trying to get back in the groove of this podcasting thing in that the world has appeared as replete with agentic and conscious other than human persons with whom dialogue is possible. <clears throat> and he doesn't mention, unfortunately, or fortunately for me, the fact that the, uh, the magic mushroom just over in Ireland and in the, the Gaelic lands is referred to as my favorite, Kapanipuka, which means puka hat, 
the hat of a puka, which is a shape-shifting fairy. My tripping self <clears throat> has imbibed knowledge that my library self finds difficult to countenance. Unwilling or unable to efface one side or the other, I am engaged in a strange kind of internal dialogue or colloquy, my quest, if you will, to find whether these two selves, these two ways of knowing, can ever meet or must forever peer at the other with mistrust and misunderstanding. It's a fair question, isn't it? To borrow Griffith's imagery, I am looking for that strange mythical connecting corridor in the Bodleian where dry Western rationalism meets wet indigenous shamanism, where the bookshelves are made of living wood, the ceiling is a vaulted canopy of leaves, and where knowledge is shared in the round about the ruddy glow of a well-tended fire. You know, I, I said this sort of thing before, but I always, I do, I do always find it a little weird when when academics and this guy, this guy seems great, but but when any Western scholar looking for understanding of nature and spirituality has to go to these very indigenous cultures or or to the distant East, I mean, bypassing the entire Western mystery tradition. I mean, there's been a lot of mystics and monks, druids, priests, madmen in the Western world, what about like Romani gypsies, hey, who have, have a wealth of, uh, for you know, ethnic knowledge, but that's a horrible word for it, really, it's just nature knowledge, just knowledge of living that we just ignore, and we sort of aggrandize these foreign or more foreign cultures, um, while ignoring the wealth of knowledge we have here, I still think most people could like learn a lot from reading Interior Castles or Dark Knight of the Soul by Avila or St. John of the Cross. And sure, those are two of my favorites, but <clears throat> if you just bypass everything around you and look to the moon and say that's where the special thing is, you're really missing out. And I'm going to remind one more time of something I've said before. When I, when I got to have my, my moment with the Dalai Lama and asked him, do you have a teaching for me? He said, don't become Buddhist. And he meant it. He really meant it, and that was great wisdom in that. And I had no intention of becoming Buddhist, but the fact that he said that to me was just such a reaffirmation of, like, do your path. Do your own path. Whatever it is you're doing, just to keep taking that all the way. You don't need to, you know, run off for something newer and shinier. I happen to think that the books of this room would make a fascinating reading, be of profound importance, and yet... Contemporary culture actively bars any attempt to uncover them. Psilocybin mushrooms remain a Class A scheduled drug with possession carrying a potential prison term. Shamanic knowledge is not just off epistemological limits, it is strictly forbidden. Yeah, wonderfully, wonderfully said there. Nevertheless, the absence of any systematic study of psychedelics and culture remains a lacuna in the academic project. The political backlash against the psychedelic hippie movement in the late 1960s brought to an end what had been rapidly expanding research field in the academy, investigating the use of psychedelics in the psychotherapy and understanding of cognition. Yes, we all know. <clears throat> we all know that the first main pioneers of psychedelia, acid, and all that stuff, they were shut down, shot in the knee. But, you know, I, really, I don't really think that actually had to do with them not wanting to understand the drugs. I think it had to do with them wanting the military and other government organizations to understand them first. Because now that with, with the publication of that book, Chaos and some other stuff, 
we know the government was using all, all these acid and all these psychedelics for mind control to train hitmen and use the hitmen and train Marilyn Manson to train those women to kill Tate and all that. We know that now for sure. The documents are out. So it's not that they didn't want us to understand psychedelics. It's that they wanted to use them first for nefarious, nefarious reasons. Very sad. It just reminds me how much we actually have to take a stand and fight if we want to have our say in what gets done with knowledge and research. Yeah, we really can't just sit by reading the books they let us read and saying, oh well, when they tell us not to study something. That is the way of foolishness. Look at John D. He went to the angels because he had literally consumed all the human knowledge available to him at the time. He couldn't find anything else. That's why he started doing angelic stuff with Enochian angels, because he had run out of things to study. So he's like, I guess I'm going to have to do magic now. That's, that's why that happened. Don't forget. <clears throat> the potential avenues that psychedelics offered philosophy and consciousness studies went unexplored. Only anthropology, insulated to a certain extent by the sheer distance between its institutions and its object of study, and perhaps an attitude of what goes on in the field stays in the field, was able to research the use of hallucinogenic drugs, albeit solely in indigenous contexts. Though chinks have begun to open in this discursive fence with major government-funded science research projects using psychedelics on human volunteers occurring both in Britain and the U.S., and here's an extensive uh, up-to-date list can be found at maps.org forward slash research. We are very far from seeing departments of the, for the critical study of psychedelics mushroom on university campuses. And yet psychedelics never went away. In spite of a 40-year prohibition, psychedelic undergrounds have continued to flourish through clubs, festivals, books, zines, websites, seminars, and conferences. Rave normalized drug-taking for a generation. And in its wake, there are a number of psychedelic spiritualities, diverse in outlook practices and drug preferences, but all centralizing the non-ordinary experiences afforded by these potent agents. Aside from the obvious political and legal obstacles to an emerging critical study of psychedelics, the study of the psychedelics in contemporary cultural contexts present problems that cut straight to the heart of the academic project problems which, with which anthropology has long been familiar. Well, I'm very excited actually to see what he thinks uh, <clears throat> is going on with the universities, how that plays out. Where were we? Imagine, for example, that you are attempting to understand the worldview of an Amazonian tribe for whom the harvesting, preparation, consumption, and interpretation of ayahuasca are central. To observe without participating, if indeed that were locally permissible, would be at best to miss out on something of vital importance, at worst to miss the point completely. On the other hand, to participate might mean compromising the rational, observing self upon which the academic project is founded. People, as we know, do not turn into jaguars, especially not scholars. <laughs> Anthropology has traditionally answered this dilemma with the taboo against going not native. I almost was going to say going naive, but pretty much the same thing in that context, isn't it? That's what they mean. 
when Michael Harner drunk ayahuasca amongst the Hivero of Ecuador and decided he wanted to be a shaman, he forfeited his place in the academy. Such a loss. Other scholars who have drunk ayahuasca but remained cognitively on side, playing by the ethnographic rules, have not. Under the pressure of post-structuralist critiques, ooh, there we go, the taboo against going native has started to buckle. I'll see, for example, Phillips and Jurgensen, 2002. But it is here, I think, that we still feel the lack of a critical study of psychedelics most acutely, even as even the most banal and trivialized drug cliches and stereotypes suggest the experiences occasioned by psychedelics ask profound questions of Western-sanctioned epistemologies and ontologies. So that is questions of knowledge and being, what is being. But we lack a considered critical phenomenology that might provide us with answers. We have instead a ragbag accumulation of exactly these cliches and stereotypes, myths and folk tales invoked by insiders looking to justify their drug preferences and outsiders their drug prejudices. Note, literature on the so-called insider-outsider debate is extensive, actually, but two useful entry points are McCutcheon, 1999, and Blaine, Ezzy, and Harvey, 2004. Who says psychedelics compromise the rational observing self, and on what basis have they reached that conclusion? Is it a conclusion arrived at by reasoned argument or discursive arm-waving? Is it a conclusion we can all share? Alternatively, might it not be the case that no matter how many times an observer consumes ayahuasca, say, the bounded nature of their cultural outlook will always prevent them from having an indigenous psychedelic experience? Won't the rational self always remain insulated by worldview? Or to put it another way, would Griffith shamans ever find their visionary way into the Bodleian library? We assume the answers to these questions, rarely debate them, perhaps because we are afraid even of the possibility of opening cracks in our impregnable epistemology. What would it mean to take Griffith's feline transformation seriously? My thing here with, the, with this stuff, you know, he's speculating on how ayahuasca might affect someone with a rational Western mind after commenting on how it did affect someone's with a Western rational mind. And a scholar at that, Griffith. But, and, and he hasn't taken it. And he's saying, won't the rational self always remain enslaved in the world? Maybe he needs to take more mushrooms. I think if he took maybe more mushrooms or ayahuasca or all these other things, like that would not be a question. But I understand he's also asking the question for the reader. But that's where it always comes back to the thing of you just got to sort of do it and, uh, you know, let it shatter your world, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Do what you want. Hmm. <clears throat> So here the author moves on to discuss animism and shamanism as it's come to inform um, people in, in the UK uh, through insiders and who harvest and consume mushrooms. Uh, in particular, I focus on a small summer solstice celebration nicknamed the University of the Hedge. As a piece of work, this chapter follows directly from on from my book, Shroom. A Cultural History of Magic Mushroom, Lecture 2006. And that's why he released this on Academia, because it's, it's a follow-up to his shroom paper. Mad Thoughts on Mushrooms, Discourse 
and power in the study of psychedelic consciousness. Of course, he's going to discuss power, right? That's a talking point these days. Uh, I wonder if we're going to get some Foucault. All of which can be seen public workings out of the internal dilemma between my library and tripping cells. If the revelation that I am the principal informant rings alarm bells, then I trust that even if you disagree with my arguments and conclusions, you will concede that my rational library self has certainly not been compromised. Man, I can't stand the whole dualistic idea that still exists, that we appeal to almost like we are choosing to create this dualism on ourselves of ourselves by appealing to it here and there. I haven't compromised my my library self. As if you have to say that to uphold any kind of intellectual integrity. And that's one thing even the Western mystics would just I mean they would just they would just even Western Christian mystics or any Western mystics would be uh, disinclined to to go along with that kind of thing. I mean, the whole idea like of unifying yourself is so central to all mysticism that this whole academical <laughs> um, forced division for the sake of some sort of you know feigned credibility is 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 uh, it always pisses me off. I just think it's so absurd and such a such a charade. But a charade, some of, a lot of us believe, and he clearly feels inclined, like he has to distinguish between these two versions of a self: the self that trips, and the self that's rational and library is library, and uh, otherwise, otherwise he's got no credibility. I mean, I think that's actually an old idea, and I think that I think once a few more, you know, generations or a generation has died out, I think no one's going to even want to talk that way. I think people will consider talking that way as archaic as a lot of the stuff from 150 years ago. But it is also my hope that along with these other works, those other works, this chapter will contribute towards the return of a critical study of psychedelics. Mushroom Picking, an autobiography. This sounds good. Picking magic mushrooms is as important to me as consuming them, possibly more so. Hmm, I know another person in England who says that. Maybe we'll talk to her at some point. Each year I make a journey, no a pilgrimage to Wales, to a discreet field where I can make my harvest unobserved. Picking allows me to build a direct relationship with the plant, strictly speaking, the fungus, or, to use uh, Irwin Hollowell's term, with this other-than-human person. I do like that. After all, you only really get to know someone when you've seen them at home. I've learned when to find the mushrooms, where to find them, the places they like to grow, their oikos. These days, I have a feel for a likely mushroom field. It just looks right. Liberty caps do not appear with sufficient abundance or frequency in my home range, hence the need to go to Wales, the closest region where they do. And also, of course... From my experiences and years in Ireland, I found out they grow in the hills of Donegal, up in Northern Ireland. So that's a powerful thing. They just spend the entire winters tripping away on mushroom tea in Ireland. That's how they survive it. Or so they tell me. I would never know from personal experience, of course. It's a two-hour drive each way, so I have to gauge the moment exactly to avoid disappointment. Proper ecological studies are lacking, but a cool autumnal day... After having, after a good drop of rain, but before the forests 
first frost seems to be about right. Mushroom picking is an art. In a good year, they appear with superabundance, and yet I have friends who are atrocious pickers who gather everything but the ones they want. <laughs> the first time I went out, I took a seasoned expert with me, but I knew the right kind as soon as I saw it. It stood out like a steadily twinkling lighthouse, as if it wanted to be seen, small and delicate, no bigger than your little finger. It had an elfin beauty and de a definite presence. You have to get your eye in, of course. On the practical level, it takes a while to work out what color they are on the day, olive green when fresh, turning yellowish-brown as they dry, how tall or how short they are, and so on. But another, some internal shift is required, like a sympathetic string in need of tuning. I'll hunt for a while and eventually spot one. Bending down to pick it up, I'll see a second close by, and then I'll realize that I am surrounded by mushrooms, hundreds of them, until that moment they were quite invisible. For me, picking mushrooms is a sacred act. I pray to them as I go. Little improvised nursery rhyme songs. Hey, little mushroom, sacred, sacred mushroom. Mushrooms or carpophores are... Is it carpophores? I don't know are the fruiting body of the organism, so I always leave ones that have not yet opened or dropped their spores. I pray to the land, too, making sure to lift my eyes from the turf to take the staggering in the staggering view. This is a wild, rugged landscape of steep valleys and craggy peaks. Ravens own the sky. Once a red kite hovered silently above me like a benediction. Talking Mushrooms that I engage with the mushrooms in this animistic fashion, by which I mean that I seek an appropriate relationship with them, to borrow Hollowell's term, as other than human persons, immediately locates me historically. As I demonstrate elsewhere, the language we use in the West to talk about psychoactive mushrooms is discursive and has changed with time. So he's getting to hermeneutics and the understanding of his understanding, placement, locality. It is actually a very important aspect of the scholarly approach, and not one that will go out of fashion. When magic mushrooms entered the historical record in the 18th and 19th centuries, they did so only via the medical records. Consumption was always accidental. The effects were guarded by both patients and physicians as potentially life-threatening symptoms of poisoning, to be treated with leeches, emetics, and the stomach pump. Like all poisonous fungi, magic mushrooms were called simply toadstools. It was only subsequent to the discovery of LSD in 1943 and the eventual synthesis of psilocybin in 1958, the mushroom's principal active ingredient, that favorable discourses emerged by which their effects came to be thought desirable. Except that's not really true, is it? Uh, maybe in, in the very stodgy scientific realm, but to say that everyone outside of science before 58 thought of magic mushrooms as poison and toadstools and to be avoided isn't true. So I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. Psychologists believed mushrooms and psychedelics more generally revealed the deep structures of the psyche or made manifest repressed material from the unconscious. More mystically inclined writers, most famously the Aldous, <laughs> the Aldous Huxley, I love the definite article there, 
who wrote about his experiences with mescaline in The Doors of Perception, 1954, thought psychedelics occasioned a classic Jamesian, nurtic, transient, passive, and ineffable encounter with the Godhead. When, and James, that's a reference to William James, of course, variety of religious experience. Not James Joyce. Uh-huh. When the American banker Robert Gordon Wasson, 1898 to 1986, discovered the use of magic mushrooms in Mazatec, Mexico in the 1950s, his yearning for mystical experience was such that he flailed to pay, failed to pay proper attention to indigenous worldviews and interpretations. He imagined Mazatec mushroom vigils to be the last surviving vestige of an original mushroom-inspired Ur religion, that's an original or higher religion, of which he was the last witness before its inevitable fall to the forces of modernity. The vigils were, in fact, syncretic, adaptive, religiously framed healing rituals, and his popular writings did much to hasten the very onslaught of modernity he decried by encouraging inundations of magic mushroom tourists. Oops. In the archaeology of popular psychedelic discourse, therefore, indigenous voices have tended to be drowned out by Westerners clamoring to find answers to their discontents in the noble savagery of the primitive. Yep. So it's actually very sad, and I could say a lot on that, but I'm not going to. The man who did most to popularize the magic mushroom in the last decade of the 20th century, the psychedelic guru, orator, and writer Terence McKenna, 1946 to 2000, remains open to this charge of simplifying, universalizing, and romanticizing indigenous worldviews. In Terence McKenna, there's a guy who didn't ignore the Western mystery tradition at all, but actually gave hour-long lectures on hermeticism. He was never a scholar of these things in the sense that uh, you know scholars are, but he read it in, in, a, in an applicable context and absorbed those Western and especially hermetic ideas, even, even a bit of Kabbalah and GD stuff to the extent that it informed and helped him understand the placement and locality of psychedelics and their roles in our lives. So that's a wonderful thing that he did, which unfortunately academics are still barely beginning to catch up with the redaction of, of Western spirituality and the Western mystical traditions. It's a, it's a quite a catastrophe, but it's slowly happening and I'm trying to help out by get some of those, getting some of those ASC type ESSWE type articles out there and expose people to, the fact that there are some good scholars studying grimoires and other magical things. Nevertheless, besides discovering how to cultivate psilocybic cubensis, work he achieved in collaboration with his brother Dennis, and that's one of Chris Bennett's friends, so he's around, he's still around. His enduring achievement was to reframe the psychedelic experience within a potent and popular shamanistic discourse. McKenna saw, in rave, ecological protest movements, and fin de siècle millenarianism, the beginnings of what he called an archaic revival of shamanistic styles and techniques, 1991. For McKenna, the magic mushroom, which he championed above LSD, damn right, was not a drug but a living conscious agent with whom a relationship could be forged and meaningful dialogue established. At high doses, he said, the mushroom could, would literally speak. Yep. Hmm. I don't necessarily believe what the mushroom tells me. Rather, we have a dialogue. It is a very strange person and has many bizarre opinions. I entertain it the way I would any eccentric friend. I say, well, so that's what you think. 
Lovely. Well, McKenna is greatly missed indeed. And if you haven't listened to 10 or 20 hours of him uh, speaking, find it on YouTube. Go uh, have a field day. He famously published a passage allegedly copied down verbatim in which the mushroom claimed to be of extraterrestrial origin and desirous of a symbiotic relationship with humankind. In return for propagation and dissemination, it would, in turn, reveal the shamanistic knowledge necessary for our ecological survival. The mushroom states its own position very clearly, it says. It requires the nervous system of a mammal. Do you have one handy? It's from McKenna, 1991, page 47. McKenna's many ideas vary from the interestingly plausible to the logically inconsistent and fantastical. The title of one of his books ought to give an idea of the breadth of his interest. The Archaic Revival, Speculations on Psychedelic Mushrooms, the Amazon, Virtual Reality, UFOs, Evolution, Shamanism, the Rebirth of the Goddess, and the End of Human History, McKenna, 1991. And I've criticized them in detail elsewhere, Lecture 2006. Mm, yeah, why not? However, my own mushrooming practices remain informed by his striking shamanistic worldview and are self-evidently bolstered by the new scholarly approach to animism, of which this book forms a part. There is no way, of course, out of discourse, no unequivocal way to determine which is the correct language to describe the experiences elicited by mushrooms, pathological, psychological, mystical, or shamanistic. But like Jay Griffiths, and in spite of my library self, I'm coming to really hate that term, library self. I don't know why. Maybe it's just my vorverstandness, my prejudice coming forth. I have come to the conclusion that a shamanistic discourse offers me the most enriching and faithful worldview. There we go. Consequently, I only consume mushrooms in context where I can pay full attention to what the mushrooms, as other than human persons, might want to bring to my attention. One of those contexts is an unusual annual celebration of the summer solstice nicknamed the University of the Hedge. He mentioned that before. The University of the Hedge. People consume magic mushrooms in a variety of contexts. Through a Class A scheduled, though a Class A scheduled drug in the UK, it is still possible to buy cultivated mushrooms, typically psilocybin cubensis, or harvested library caps, liberty caps via the internet or a small black market. Actually, when I first did them, it was on the banks of the river in Ireland, in Galway, and we just bought them from the from the head shop. They were they were legal back in two thousand five to sell there. Anecdotal evidence suggests that most people consume mushrooms recreationally at clubs or parties for the pleasures that tripping brings. Really? Anecdotal evidence? I don't know who this guy's hanging out with or talking to. That's just not my experience. Um, psilocybin's well-documented pharmacological effects introduce a gripping and steadily unfolding novelty into consciousness one that, if received favorably by the subject, can intensify environments already constructed for maximum sensory delight. As party drugs, alcohol, and MDMA provide the discursive template here. McKenna advocated a more austere setting, high doses of mushrooms consumed on an empty stomach in silent darkness. Only by adopting such an osculatory attitude, he argued, could one begin to pay attention to what the mushroom might reveal. 
So yes, you know, I, I have a hard, it's rough for me to always see these people putting, focusing so much on the clubs and contrasting to clubs and party scenes because it really says more about where their focus is than on on, on where actual users' focus is because they're just not talking to the right people. They're just it's a it's a small sample set, and sure, people do party on on drugs, but like fucking tons of people don't tons so many and that's how it's been my whole life is just a, a late born gen xer um and it never was really there i just it just seems like it's too convenient to be like it's mostly been a drug party thing but slowly we've started to see it spiritually i just don't buy that narrative at all that's the that's what i'm saying here that's a stupid narrative that it doesn't hold i think any water there's lots of people who have always partied and tons of people who have always used it in a spiritual and, you know, mystical context. That's, that's the more accurate narrative in my opinion, but it's much, it's just so easy and sensationalist to be like, Oh, everyone thinks it's this party thing, but really it's not. It's like, come on. We know that we've known that for forever. The Irish tripping up in Donegal have known that for forever. The whale Welsh and Wales have probably been tripping on those things in mystical context context for forever so come on <clears throat> without exception i've always found taking mushrooms in human-centered environment pub club city to be profoundly unpleasant see that's that's what he's done so that's why he's looking at it that way while having to sit still feels unbearably prescriptive oh man oh i'm sorry you've suffered so much trying to sit still and enjoy the psychedelia trip what a challenge I have never heard McKenna's mushroom voice, but the thoughts, concepts, ideas, images, and connections that course through me come with an emboldened certainty, and as if they are being presented to my consciousness rather than arising from it. Okay, this guy just hasn't taken enough, or he hasn't gone out in nature, or done it under a full moon, or played some music with it, there, or had a campfire. That's what's going on here. He's probably taking like three, four grams most, it sounds like. Take five, take ten, take nine, take fifteen. There you go. The consistent message, if you will, that I receive is that my day-to-day -day human concerns are infuriatingly solipsistic and narcissistically culture-bound. The mushrooms demand that I notice the other-than-human world, in particular, the plant kingdom. See, no mention of the fairy realm, even though that's what he would probably be talking about the dragon of nature and the, the fairies and the she under the hill and stuff like that if he had taken a proper dose ever. This is why I always take mushrooms outdoors. Good for him. Away from the unburdened, unbemushroomed un, un, un and other human disturbance. I need to step outside the ordinary human environment to hear what the mushrooms have to say. Well, there you go. I'm not totally lost. Yeah, I know I'm getting myself in trouble here, aren't I? Since 1988, whenever possible, I have celebrated the summer solstice with friends at Avebury Stone Circle. Good. That's great. I love Avebury. The popularity of Avebury and Stonehenge at solstice destinations has meant that Avebury is much rowdier than once it was. These days, I go to a discreet location at the edge of the World Heritage Site, where it is still possible to be in the Avebury landscape, but also to have a fire to play acoustic music without the deafening accompaniment of samba drumming, and to consume mushrooms in an intentional and attentive, though never po-faced setting. See, so that's great. He describes doing this right, beautiful setting with fire and all that, but he still says he's never communicated or never heard the voice or never, like, 
seeing the things that I would take as essential to the most basic uh, proper trip. That's very weird to me. A core group of friends assembles each year. Veterans from the road protests of the 1990s, psychedelic enthusiasts and musicians, earth mystics, freaks, all of whom share a sense that the time and place are sacred. The nickname University of the Hedge comes from the fact that several of us now have PhDs. Yet still haven't taken a proper dose. Come on, man. It is as close to my ideal Bodleian reading room as I think it possible to get. We take mushrooms, drink tea, sit around the fire playing music and discussing all manner of out there ideas. And that's great. I bet I'd love to be there with them. But it's, I'm still getting that very strong impression like they're, they're taking small, small amounts. That's what it sounds like. Wittgenstein, Heidegger, Bergson. Bergson's the best. I love Bergson. Ah. And prime number theory are as likely to be examined as ley lines, McKenna, and meaning of Avebury, whether what we are doing has any wider import. I'm not sure why you want to discuss Wittgenstein on Wittgenstein on mushrooms, though. Like you know, I mean, <laughs> there's a limited amount of Tractatus Logos Philosophicus you can handle at any time, even sober. So, unless they're talking about later Wittgenstein, now Heidegger I can get behind, and Bergson now that's just a that's just a trippy on its own. If anyone wants to read good Bergson, read Creative Evolution or Matter and Memory. Those are good. And don't forget, Bergson was uh, Moyna Mather's brother who taught at the Sorbonne. It's a thrilling yet relaxed intellectual environment in which ideas can be examined by curious minds through the even more curious lens of psilocybin consciousness. The vigil begins with us watching the sunset and then collecting sufficient wood for a fire to last the short night. A fire serves the practical purpose of providing warmth, light, and kettles of boiling water for tea, but it offers a ceremonial and symbolic focus too. <clears throat> a fire invites you to sit in the round, tending it becomes a shared activity. The fire literally fuels the gathering. When it is dark, mushrooms are shared by whoever has brought them. This is to be a communal experience, a journey to be undertaken together. Strange he's never once said the word sacrament, that's odd to me. Along with the fire, tea, and mushrooms, the other important ingredient is music. Good. Music, especially improvised music, yes, seems to have a unique ability to both shape and give expression to a trip. That is super, super key. Like, actually, I've, I've had times where people have not let me actually play music or just jam out on the strings or the wind instrument or my flute, and it's been upsetting to say the least. I don't know why that happened, but sometimes it has happened that people decide they didn't want me doing anything. They just wanted to talk. And everyone always agrees that it's a worse trip because the music is so key to not just creating trippy visuals, but it it does something. It's like the spell that leads you into fairy. In spite of many good attempts, triplet always risks sounding pretentious or solipsistic and often works contrary to its purpose by distancing the reader from the experience it describes. Trip-lit. I hadn't heard that term, but I guess that makes sense. By contrast, the melodies, timbres, rhythms, and harmonic progressions of music seem to fit the unfolding experience more faithfully or to suggest it again afterwards. Since its inception, Western psychedelic music has flourished in a diversity of forms. 
briefly, the kind of music we play belongs to a very British tradition of pastoral psychedelic folk that harks back to bands from the 60s and 70s, like the incredible string band Comus Gryphon and the amazing Blondell. I haven't heard of any of those. And further still to Elizabethan and medieval music. See, I like to do stuff from like Child's Book of Ballads or variations on old Celtic melodies. That's my sort of jam. But really, just I usually play what the mushrooms tell me to play. That's the best. That's when the light starts shooting out from the strings and reality warps and merges around me. The 90s road protests gave the genre a more political and ecological focus, spawning bands like Space Goats, Heathens All, the Donga's Tribe, and my own Jabberwocky. Oh, so he's in a band, hey? And saw a series of cassette-only releases of bardic performers captured in the field at campaigns called Tribal Voices. That's all cool. That's cool. I'll get you down with that. For all involved, a low-impact protest lifestyle, protest lifestyle informed and shaped the music. A romantic eco-bardism played on mandolins, bazookis, that's my thing, bagpipes, oh, I like that too, whistles and hurdy-gurdies, with an emphasis on the importance of drones. Mm-hmm. It came to be called Tribedelica, or Trubedelica, and it fits mushroom trips exceedingly well. Someone will start playing an improvised phrase or lick. One by one, others will join in until everyone is jamming. The music builds in intensity, one chord progression morphing into another, singers extemporizing over the top until quite literally, when with no leading or giving a signal, the music stops. Time for more tea and talk before another jam or song begins. See, that's really, that's perfect. That's exactly what I, I would say. So how, given that he does those experiences, does he not have any of the experiences that McKenna describes? And he doesn't understand what McKenna's talking about when it comes to the communication or experience of the mushrooms. I don't understand that. Very weird. Jay Griffiths describes how ayahuasca shamans sing Icaros, haunting songs that somehow guide the trip and act as lifelines for participants when the experience becomes overwhelming. We are perhaps a long way from finding mushroom Icaros, or indeed from discovering whether Icaros are appropriate in this context at all. But I like to think that with Tribadelica we are making a good start. What draws the members of the hedge together is a shared sense that what we do fits, or is appropriate to the spirit of the place. Of course. In no way do we pretend to know what meanings the original builders of Avebury, whoever they may have been, see Gillings and Pollard, 2004, had in mind. Nor are we trying to reconstruct some original practice. I remain unconvinced that mushrooms were used in prehistory. You do, do you? You remain unconvinced that mushrooms were used in prehistory. Oh, yeah. Druids never used mushrooms. The ancients didn't use mushrooms. None of those people ever used mushrooms, not at all, especially the people who built Stonehenge and Avebury. No mystics in England or Ireland who built dolmens ever would have used psychedelic mushrooms. Just no chance. That's literally what this guy is saying in his 2006 book. <sighs> okay, soldier on. Rather, we offer our way of doing things in a respectful manner. Most people come by bicycle, foot, or public transport, for example. Lead singer of the Space Goats, Pock, coined the term inhurement for that feeling produced by a combination of music, mushrooms, sacred time, and sacred place. The band's catchphrase was, get thee inthurud. Inhurud. Okay. 
This sounds very cliquey, actually, all these people. At the University of the Hedge, we most certainly do. Okay. It is also at the University of the Hedge that I have had some of my most profound shaman, shamanistic experiences, by which I mean the apprehension that the world is filled with persons, not all of which are human. And yet the mushrooms have never spoken to him. Okay. I have already mentioned that mushrooms seem to direct my attention towards plants. In childhood, plants were inanimate objects to me, and nothing would give me more pleasure than to thwack a stand of nettles into pulpy oblivion. Yeah, this kid definitely didn't go to Waldorf school, did he? What a fucker. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think, I think he'd be a wonderful guy to talk to. But yeah, given some of the stuff I say on this podcast, most PhDs, once they take a look, uh, run for the hills from me. I know, I just don't edit myself properly for the Academy, do I? I wonder why that would be. They've been so good to me. But on mushrooms, plants appear quite clearly as other than human persons. The humblest weed was as, as significant and important as the most significant tree, to whom respect ought to be paid, not violence. Well, at least he figured that out later in life after doing a lot of psychedelics. I always know when I'm coming up because I become aware of the plants, their aliveness, their presence. Really excellent point there. That's a definitely a really powerful way to know that it's starting. That they have noticed me. The way I apprehend them has changed permanently. I do not think that some cognitive system or perceptual mechanism has been damaged. Rather, just as when once you have noticed it, it becomes impossible to shut it out. The sound of a ticking clock... So, having seen plants in this way, I cannot now unnotice how they are. The idea that plants can speak to you, as Griffith's recount, seems wholly possible after mushrooms. And yet he still hasn't experienced it after decades of doing this stuff. Amazing. He's probably never, I guess he's never seen the dragon, as we call it, either. Hmm. Very odd. I have also had more classic shamanistic visions. Once a relative of mine was dangerously ill. She appeared to me in my inner imagination as a strange, complex, ever-moving, three-dimensional shape, a sort of biomechanical machine. A part of her mechanism was stuck, moving repetitively but ineffectively like a mayfly snagged in a cobweb. I could see exactly why she was ill and what to do to make her better. Shamanize, shamanize, demanded my inner voice, and so I did. I make no claim to have healed her. The team of surgeons who operated on her did that. But I like to think that what I did worked, perhaps, on a parallel sickness of spirit. The why of her illness, not the how. At least this is how it seemed to me at the time. But in the clear light of day, my library self demands to know, what if I am mistaken? Ought not parsimony persimony or failing that pressure from the dominant materialistic discourse of our age lead me to a psychological explanation for these non-ordinary experiences? Aren't they projections or worse hallucinations and quite to be expected in a consciousness unhinged by drugs? My private quest to find an adequate answer to these questions has led me to seek answers in philosophy and thence to the thought of Henri Bergson. There we go. He could have started there, though, to be fair. If definite answers are unforthcoming, then I believe his insights nevertheless contain important implications for the critical study of psychedelics and for the academic project in general. Time and space. See, getting into Bergson is a big part of why I want to present this essay, because Bergson with psychedelics, that's, that's the money shot right there. Um, 
Letcher as this uh, as a professor as an academic sort of perplexes me a little bit. But he is also writing for a, a public audience that you know he's trying to appeal to in a certain way. So that's that's all fine and dandy. It is a, it is a constant challenge to present this stuff to people who think it's still uh, dangerous, and it's dangerous. But in the same way as any thing in life is dangerous, crossing the street one of the most dangerous things you'll ever do. Seriously, right? And uh, another point worth making here is uh, that, oh, how do I say it? I'll just leave that. Yeah, I'll leave that thought for later. Let's get into Henri Bergson. How do you feel? Perhaps you are happy, sad, or grumpy, though not, I hope, bored. We are used to defining ourselves in this familiar, definite way, but in his first major work, Time and Free Will, Bergson, 1913, Bergson challenges us to think again. Whatever you are experiencing right now, you have never felt it before. You may think you are sad because that is how you prescribed, described yourself the last time you felt similarly, but in fact, the feeling is not the same. It is infused with and informed by memory. Consequently, the same feeling by the mere fact of being repeated is a new feeling, Bergson 2005. There we go. In dreams, though, I don't know why it says Bergson. Oh, that's, so he's quoting from a two for that. For fun, for some of you non-academics out there, that means he's quoting from a 2005 edition of a Bergson book, which is, uh, you know, so then you look at the bibliography, see which one it is, and it's page 200. There's the quote. It is a good quote. The same feeling by the mere fact of being repeated is a new feeling. Amen. And it's very, very Heideggerian myth of the eternal return and all that sort of thing. The dreams one person can simultaneously represent in dreams, one person can simultaneously represent two or three or more people or qualities. So it is with our internal condition. This latter exists as pure equality, what Bergson calls a confused multiplicity, which we name as happy, sad, or whatever, for the purposes of social interaction. But to name how we feel is to do violence to the very complexity of this multiplicity by fixing in space that which unfolds through time, or rather, what Bergson terms duration. The brutal word, which stores up what is stable, common, and therefore impersonal in human impressions, crushes, or at least covers up over the delicate and fleeting impressions of our individual consciousness. Bergson cited in Gerlach, 2006. Our immediate experience of duration will always be immeasurably immeasurable with language, which crushes duration through its very iterative structure. Gerlach, 2006. For Bergson, the fundamental error, which we are drawn to make because of the way our brains have evolved, is to misconstrue time as space. We measure space, we measure time, by the distance traveled by hands around a clock or sequentially in the pages of a diary, but duration is rather something which continually unfolds. That is what all forms of symbolic representation do which is why it cannot think duration, but only time. Duration can only be lived, or as Bergson puts it, can time be adequately represented by space? To which we answer yes, if you are dealing with time flown. No, if you speak of time flowing. 
that's that's why I love Bergson. Such has a grace to the way he presents ideas. Bergson, therefore, distinguishes two aspects of consciousness, immediate consciousness, which exists in pure duration, and reflective consciousness, which, by the very way it grasps the data of immediate consciousness through language, symbol, logic, or mathematics, renders duration as time, which is to say as space. These aspects correspond to two selves, a passionate self in touch with the heterogeneous real, and a superficial self that conforms to social conventions and the pressures of language. In this, Bergson prefigures post-structuralist thought. Yep, but unlike, say, a queer theorist like Judith Butler, he allows a self prescripted, unscripted by discourse, his passionate self. I mean, that's stuff that uh, you see continued in the writings of Foucault and, you know, uh, uh, Corrington, Derrida. The risk is that by confusing the superficial for the passionate, we become automata. The task of philosophy, therefore, is to pay attention to immediate consciousness, to try and apprehend it, not via some return to naive experience, but through intuition, which itself requires a vigorous effort of analysis. Bergson's insights are subtle yet surprising and have important consequences which, I argue, open up a legitimate place for the critical study of psychedelics in the academic project. I love the idea, actually, that Dr. Letcher here is getting into of <laughs> Bergson's insights being leading ones applicable to the critical study of psychedelics. That is, that's, in, that's it's, it's insightful. It is, because a lot of people have overlooked Bergson for a long time. I don't think actually Bergson's even begun to be properly studied because he was just a little bit, mm, you know, now that, now that we understand, have this, uh, now that people, are, we have quantum mechanics and such a deep understanding of physics developed in popular culture, I think people are going to start to be able to look at Bergson's philosophical ideas with a bit more familiarity. So, firstly, Bergson's distinction between immediate consciousness and reflective consciousness is instructive. When tripping on psilocybin, the visions, thoughts, and ideas that occur seem to arise as if they were being presented. They bubble up in duration as a stream of novelty and wash over immediate consciousness like an ever-breaking wave. And yet, no matter how intense the experience, there is always the sense of an uncompromised reflective consciousness observing and grasping, performing the hermeneutic task of interpreting what is going on. McKenna concurred on this point, however bizarre the experiences it elicits, psilocybin, unlike some other drugs, leaves an observing eye intact. As I lie on my back, clutching the grass to steady my nauseous body, a face looms out of the endless play of hallucinations behind my closed eyelids. It has a single eye and looks as if it were made of wood or is some fluid, octopus-like creature. Slightly menacing, it seems to be observing me. Tentacles spring from its back and lunge towards me like mycelia. Frightened, I open my eyes and the vision breaks. After a short moment, my inner voice speaks with authority. That was the mushroom spirit. Come to pay you a visit. What happened here? A face arose within the provoked sensorium of immediate consciousness, and I immediately interpreted it via reflective consciousness. I could have interpreted it many different ways, and indeed was aware that I had a choice. 
but rendered it meaningful in terms set by my preferred shamanistic discourse. Thus, Bergson's framework gives us grounds for arguing against the popularly held opinion that the rational observing self, his reflective consciousness, is compromised by psychedelics. The phenomenological experience of taking psilocybin is otherwise. To participate in a psychedelic experience is not, therefore, necessarily to have crossed an unacceptable ontological line. So something's occurring to me now as I've gone into this um, for you guys. It's the, the, a lot of the preamble, the, the framing things in the library self and the tripping self, the, the party scene against the spiritual setting of his, uh, his hedge university, the referencing, oh, a bunch of us have PhDs now. As you can see he's sort of justifying and, and, and buttressing himself to the blowback from academics. But you know, those academics that are going to blow back are going to blow back anyway. One of my best friends in the world, he's a, a brilliant academic, and we've been friends since we were 13. You know, when I, he found out how much uh, experiences I was having and how much I could handle, um, you know, twice a heroic dose on a regular, semi-regular basis with not just a profound experience, but a controlled or a controlled journey, an intentional journey. He he thought I was crazy. He thought I basically had described myself as some sort of meth head or something like that. So a lot of people still do see psychedelics as you may as well be a heroin junkie if you're going to do psychedelics. That still does exist. So I can see why he has to preface all this stuff for the academic world and all of that. That makes sense. Here he's getting into it a bit more, which I'm really enjoying. I hope you are too. I can't believe it's so hot here in California. 100 degrees. In any case, and secondly, as soon as I write down what has happened, I am necessarily engaged in a process of critical recollection. I endure, but the me writing the account is not the me who had the experience, nor is my experience the account experience, but a spatialized rendition of it, tailored to the social expectations of genre. Given that this is true of all ethnography, that all ethnography is selectively recalled after the event, there is no a priori reason why autobiographical tripography cannot meet the standards required for critical scholarship. Writing must be judged on its own merit and not simply on its subject matter. Okay, that's clear. Still such a shame that he thinks that no one in history used mushrooms in prehistory or whatever he calls it. Like, it's like you can see the, the, the bias amongst PhDs against folks like Chris Bennett and, uh, and Hatsis, I think, as well, who I've been looking into because he's planning on coming on the podcast this week. Um, it's just uh, the, the, the bigotry and bias of the university system against independent scholarship is still so dank that they you see all these academics doing all this work, just doing circles around a subject that's been well explored, but they can't cite those authors because of bias. It's just such a sham when you think about it intellectually because <laughs> ignoring information because the person who wrote it doesn't have a PhD or something like that, you know, there, that's a reason. That's a reason to mock universities if there ever there was one. Of course, ethnography has traditionally ruled the data of immediate consciousness to be of limited or non-existent value in what is supposed to be objective academic exercise. 
I say traditionally because in so-called reflexive turn, the insider-outsider dichotomy has been challenged, if not effaced. Yep. With anthropologists owning all manner of non-ordinary insider experiences, most famously described in Young and Goulet in 1994, and also in my own field in, in theology, um, um, qualitative research research has has become essential, especially as um, academics started looking at the First Nations experiences in Canada coming out of the reform schools and the atrocities of that, which you know apartheid was modeled on Canadian reform schools. It's it was. It's another Holocaust, essentially, and um, there was no way to look at it theologically, especially in a way that was valid or would challenge the prevailing theological and ideological and sociological models that we came from the, the cultural milieu that allowed that to happen. If you did not look at what the survivors actually had to say, you had to look at what the First Nation survivors had to say coming out of those schools. The last one didn't close down until 1969 tragically, the Black Hawk School in Ontario, and had academics not started looking at qualitative research, which is people's experiences, then, uh, you know, we would have continued in uh, the harshest kind of intellectual ignorance and arrogance possible, and never even really understood what happened there. So, those sort of methodologies or things he's saying are starting to get overturned, effaced, and looked at in other fields as well, like anthropology, but I mean, it seems this seems a little late to the game, to be honest. And but a lot of academics are late to the game. They get stuck in their own critic methodologies. They get bound to to arguments made in published books and can't move on because they've already published that idea, so they're stuck to it. Yeah. Even so, scholars are never expected to justify or explain their subjective involvement in those their chosen discipline. It is taken as given or simply ignored. Yeah, that makes sense in the British system of academics, but a lot of other academic schools have thrown that out the window because, you know, and I have a, could make a lot of arguments as to why that's important. But I won't. I did write a book on it, though. Why do we study this particular religion or tribe or culture? Why do we invoke this theory or philosopher and not another? Are we guided by pragmatism and enthusiasm? In spite of every new philosophical school's claim to have solved all the problems of its forebears, no philosophical system has achieved completeness. Perhaps it is a law of philosophy that no system ever will. The idea of philosophical systems or the idea of a complete philosophical system is completely uh, pre-modern or modernist idea. It's actually like pre-structuralist. It's not, it's not post-structural or post-modern or deconstructive. It's pre-structuralist. The structuralists like Saussure, Charles Sanders Peirce, all of those sort of things, even like, you know, which I don't want to bring up. Eliade or Campbell because they're, that's a different field and, and we don't study things the way they did anymore. But look at the linguistic and philological methodologies that have developed since the last hundred years, way before the postmodernists. This thing, uh, this, this, uh, this idea he's sharing here of an idea of a complete philosophical system is completely archaic in the most <laughs> Grecian sense. <laughs> the post-Kantian romantic philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte 1762 to 1814, see there's a time frame that we're talking about now, <laughs> warned that all philosophical systems rest on axioms that cannot be proved from within the systems themselves. Exactly. Which system we adopt, therefore, remains a matter of personal choice. And, you know, Wittgenstein gets into some of this in his uh, 
work before he died when he overturned his own arguments of the Logos Tractatus. Bergson concurred, We are drawn to an idea, not by its logical consistency or brilliance, but qualitatively and subjectively by how well it conforms to our existing tastes. God bless the French for a little common sense once in a while. Yeah, The beliefs to which we most strongly adhere are those of which we should find it most difficult to give an account. This is Bergson talking. I'm going to say that again. The beliefs to which we most strongly adhere are those of which we should find it most difficult to give an account. And the reasons by which we justify them are seldom those which have led us to adopt them. In a certain sense... We have adopted them without any reason, for what makes them valuable in our eyes is that they match the color of all our other ideas, and that from the very first we have seen in them something of ourselves. Bergson, 1913. I like that he gave the original date there as well as the 2005 reprint edition of whatever he's working from. Page 13, by 135. 1913, if you want to find that beautiful quote from Bergson. If this podcast actually does anything, it's probably hopefully to get a bunch of you to start looking at Bergson. And I know there's a bunch of hermetic type people out there and GD type people. And Bergson, again, Moyna Mathers' brother. So he didn't really let Mathers, the Matherses hang out much at his place down the street from where they lived in the Sorbonne, apparently. I recently learned from Yeats' diary entries because uh, I think they didn't get along as I used to think they did, but you can definitely see some cross-pollination of ideas going on there. Like that, that goes without saying. But Bergson teaching at the Sorbonne probably needed to distance himself from McGregor Mathers and his sister a little bit because Mathers was like biking around Paris in a kilt. And in my opinion gay as a picnic basket, having some fun, but that's, of course, uh, a marginal view. I've never, no one else has ever said that. Certainly not in an academic conference like I just did in February. Oops. In other words, the reason why I'm writing about Bergson here and encouraging you to follow up his ideas is that I find his thought reflects my experiences of tripping and provides me with the sympathetic philosophical structure with which to apprehend them. Bergson chimes for me in a way that Say Wittgenstein does not. I have. I can't even be a dick here and say that I really have a feeling like Dr. Letcher here doesn't understand Wittgenstein, and certainly not the contrast of his early to his late work. But that's a little critical. But anyway, he has a PhD. I don't, so I can say what I want, right? Likewise, though it is true that I have settled on the shamanistic discourses. I was the most fruitful way of interpreting my psilocybin experiences. The fact is that I am persuaded of it because it fits with what I already know, or rather feel to be the case. And it's not a shock that uh, someone like Bergson in the, in the French sort of system would, would talk about taste and what feels right and aesthetic, because that is very much part of the French philosophical milieu. Um, and that leads straight into postmodern, post-structuralist thought. Um, again, not in the way that I can't, I hate that every time I say those terms, I have to almost like footnote them because so many people have like, the terms have been redefined and abused in the same way that feminist now means women are better than men and not equal to men, which I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me, but the world's gone nutty. That's why I'm trapped in a room in a foreign country, can't go home and have to sit here talking to a computer screen. So moving on, but if this is true of me, then it is true of all of us who are passionately involved in our subjects. My third point, then, is that seen through the lens of Bergsonism, Bergsonism, 
Bergsonism, I don't like that. I, whatever. The idea of a disinterested, objective self starts to look more like a convenient fiction than an established fact. We had that idea way before Bergson's. But its nature, the critical study of psychedelics, forces us to put ourselves back into the analytic frame. How could it not? Berg, from, but Bergson exposes the way scholars routinely smuggle their passionate selves into what is supposed to be a rational and detached activity. If the critical study of psychedelics is ruled invalid a priori on the grounds of subjectivity, then so must the rest. And Bergson's right there. That's you know, a big reason why I think he was actually marginalized in the last 60 years of academia, um, because he was sort of uh, laying bare some of the, the uh, a priori and... and pre-understandings, as, as Gadamer would say, of the hermeneutics of any academic's approach. That said, let's move on. Scholars and Jaguars. If my Bergson defense of the critical study of psychedelics, Bergsonian defense, blah, 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 is sufficient to hoist potential detractors on their critical petards, then the likelihood of my one day finding the ideal Bodleian reading room, an institutionalized university of the hedge, ought to be increased. But is there really any chance of reconciliation between Western materialistic and indigenous shamanistic epistemologies? Isn't the ontological chasm between the scholar and the jaguar just too great? Again, this guy doesn't look at Western esotericism at all, doesn't look at Western mysticism at all, and seems to be ignorant of that entire tradition of mystics probably due to a bias against Christianity, Judaism, and all the other forms of religion that have existed from Druidic stuff to other prehistoric things, which he's quite firm, never would have taken any mushrooms, in his opinion. Never used them. No, just not at all. I'm holding back here, guys. Scholars have long noted similar difficulties that obtain with regards to the study of mysticism. See Scharf. Mystics and some scholars point to the extraordinary nature of mystical experience as indubitable proof of the truth of the truth claims of the worldview in which it occurred. But experience, mystical or otherwise, remains a private matter, and we only ever have access to accounts, accounts that, being culturally bound, may point to nothing beyond themselves. Accounts, in other words, are, are dubitable. The same is true of psychedelic experiences, lacking anything resembling an Archimedes point from which to assess the truth claims of trip reports, whether we side with the scholar or the jaguar comes down, as Fichte warned, to a matter of personal choice. You know, here I'd love to jump into like the fact that, again, one of the biggest flaws that uh, academics need to really continue to work at getting over is the is the limitations of being bound by their discipline. Like it's it is. Uh, Eric Weinstein is right when he says that it's the polymaths that really are the greatest contributors to scholarly knowledge in history. And I was raised in that tradition, for sure, from by the academics who trained me from age 13 on, Dr. Idol Tim and, and so and so, and so weiter, um, who didn't have this sort of disciplinary boundary uh, ideology that, that reigns in most of academia. So he comes from a certain field of academia. If he looked at some of the stuff like Voter Hanegraaff, was talking about recently in his article in Religion uh, in 2020, just this year, on, on reframing and re-understanding, uh, even renaming perhaps the study of religion or religious department studies as spirituality and encouraging professors to pursue not something that they think will just be publishable or get them uh, tenure, but actually 
has something to do with their interests for, from, from a very staunch old school academic like Hanegraaff to say something like that is really indicative of where academia does need to move if, if the departments are to not die out entirely, which is his concern, of course. Ah, I didn't think I'd get so passionate this early in the morning, but there you have it. Let's go back. Given the shamanistic, I don't like that word, his neologism. Shaman, shamanistic, shamanistic, that's what he wants to say, shamanistic. It's stupid. Discourses are already on the loose here in the West, prowling through the outer reaches of psychedelic and other alternative spiritualities. My aim in this chapter has been to initiate critical dialogue by highlighting them and describing how they have bitten me, or at least my tripping self. And yet my library self finds this open, relativistic, and inconclusive ending all but a bit disconcerting. Well, brother, maybe you need to get over your own nascent dualism and grow the fuck up. I still want to know whether plants talk or not. Can shamans actually heal people or not? Placebo effect aside, Bergson perhaps offers us an answer. Placebo effect aside, placebo effect is a massive part of human healing. They have admitted that. that it's, it's not a thing you can put aside. Actually, the whole mentality of putting the placebo effect aside is saying that 40% of your body that heals itself because it thinks it can heal itself doesn't count as healing is, is categorically absurd and beyond stupid. I'm in trouble here, aren't I, guys? <laughs> oh, whatever. Life's short. It'll be over soon. What marks Bergson as a particularly unusual and forward-thinking philosopher is that far from viewing reason as something a priori or God-given, he regards it as a necessarily limited product of our evolution. Yep. Intellect, he argues, exists solely to enable us to act upon the world. Poke a squid and its tentacles retract. Poke me and I can choose all manner of responses by virtue of possessing intellect. As the product of intellect, science divides the world and embarks on a continual process of refining and articulating those divisions in order that we might act more artfully and with greater precision. Bergson, 1912. But as we have seen... Intellect cannot grasp duration without misconstruing it in terms of space as time. In other words, a priori, science can never obtain a complete picture of this world. That's, that's very beautiful. I love the guy, like this guy's using Bergson, and everything he's doing here is great. I just think, I think he may be a bit older than me or us, and uh, needs to throw that dualism out and like just... Uh, be a whole person. If you're going to present yourself to the university, present yourself as a whole person. Don't don't keep your tripping self in the back burner and say, oh, I'm studying what I'm studying. I'm studying First Nations abuses and theology, but it has no personal connection to it. I'm studying this with no personal connection. The, this acting like these social sciences are hard sciences, is that's your first mistake. I mean, one of the best things that postmodernists did was admit the fact that social sciences and all philosophy is essentially aesthetics. Oh, yeah, I said it. I said it. Because that's fucking true. That's what I think. Anyway, I know I'm pissing off everyone in the Anglo-American analytical tradition, but that's, that's what I do. 
Could it be that when we take psilocybin or ayahuasca, we are plunged back into the sensorium of immediate experience, a stream of data that science is incapable of grasping, but one in which is seeming, but one in which seeming is being, and where the shamanistic shamanistic view of is fundamentally correct? Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? His references are Bergson, nineteen twelve, Creative Evolution, as I suggested. Time and free will. Um, some other interesting stuff. I can't believe he doesn't reference the other Bergson books I mentioned. And as for the other sources going down here, I'm seeing like hardly any references to any of the major sources I would refer to. And the fact that he doesn't really have any references to the philosophical tradition, especially uh, mystical philosophy or mystical theology. I mean, yeah, you can write all that stuff off, and you can write off theology if you want to. Just throw it all out, throw the baby out with the bathwater, throw out philosophy entirely, throw out the Gnostic traditions, the ancient Egyptian mythologies, Druidism, Christian mystics, like all of it. Throw it all out. Fuck Kabbalah. Just toss it out. But then you end up with papers that talk about a Western worldview that's lacking something that you can't find simply because you're ignoring all the sources and the fields and subjects. You're ignoring them. You're like, I can't see any trees. It's like, well, maybe you should open your eyes because you're in a forest. It's like, oh, no, there are no trees, but I think they are there if I believe in them. It's like, do your fucking homework. Get out of your discipline. Get out of your narrow field and read more broadly. Oh, I need to footnote this. After I saved the title, I remembered by typing it in to just before I bounce it out of GarageBand, I noticed the title, of course, is Psychedelics, Animism, and Spirituality. And so I'm, I know this, this ended up me being pretty harsh on uh, the poor professor here, but he, he's got a PhD, and so he should be able to take it, especially from someone who lost his. But here's what I would say. Animism barely talks about animism, certainly doesn't reference even one of the most, one major source on the, what animism is actually about. Um, spirituality, not a single reference to any significant writer in the field of spirituality. And that's so typical of people who are stuck in a certain field. They think that their understanding of another field is only that which is referenced in their field. They don't actually then go look at that other field. It's like me talking about the, the stars and the solar system because I've read what Aquinas thought of the stars in the solar system instead of actually reading, reading astrophysics or listening to, you know, the wonderful person podcast with the Anton, the Russian astrophysicist. I mean, if I don't actually look at astrophysics, but then I commentate on the state of astrophysics and their role in our life just by reading, say, what Galileo thought, like, come on read some of the actual academic work and spirituality. There's some serious work. I've referenced tons of them, like Kevin Hart, not the comedian, um, Dermot O'Murhu, Irish writer. Um, the list is huge. Macintosh. Uh, it, it is a, just a massive field in animism. And he mentions animism and doesn't even reference Evelyn Underhill. Yeah, yeah, take a hike. Other than that, I really love this essay, and it allowed me to talk about a bunch of things that are really close to my heart. So thank you, Professor, and listeners, have a wonderful day. Don't melt in the heat. 
Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk